Hey everybody, terrific episode today, all about what we can learn from non-human animals about human health. Super cool guest, so smart, so interesting, such a unique uh, area of research and that was stumbled on in a serendipitous way. That's, uh, I, I love these kind of serendipitous discoveries in science where someone gets paired with someone else or just there's just this right combination of, of things that come together in some way that yields these incredible results that uh, who knows how long it would have been before we discovered some of these things. So, uh, very excited for the show, very excited because I just did the first Patreon board game night uh, just last Saturday. It was terrific. Put a message out there for eight people, um, eight, eight Patreon supporters to meet up, do some board games. A couple people had played the game code names before, some hadn't. It's a game that takes five minutes to learn. Probably going to explore some other things in the future as well. And it was, uh, you know, I have to tell you, I get uh, I get nervous meeting any group of strangers ever, and I was I've, I'm always uh, nervous about how it, how it's going to go. Even when I do live shows, meeting people after shows and stuff like that, I'm I'm just not. I've never been good at meeting strangers and it was a lot of fun. So it was, uh, board games is one of my favorite things to do. It was fun to get to share it with fans. It was super fun that all of, uh, all the people that showed up were really awesome and cool to get to know a little bit and have some laughs and a good time. And so I'm doing it on a regular basis. Uh, basically weekly. I'm going to go for four times a month anyway and kind of rotate date, uh, days of the week and time and stuff like that so we can hit uh, everyone that wants to uh, try out a board game night. No experience necessary. If board games sound like, uh, I haven't played a board game since I was a kid and I played Monopoly or Sorry or Hi-Ho Cherry or something like that. And it was some silly thing that I stopped doing when I was eight. Well, let me tell you, the world has changed quite a bit. We got some some hot new board games out there for adults. Uh, and uh, Really easy to learn, super fun to play. And so check it out. It's just a fun way to catch up. No, There's no like pressure to fill dead air and all that. It's one of my favorite things about board games. Just into board games. Play more board games, everybody. And uh, beefing up the Patreon. Um, uh, getting to work on beefing up the the Discord uh, a, a little more. It's kind of been in uh, beta testing state. It's been, but it's it's been super active in a cool community. And so I'm finally. That's my goal now. This year is to start launching things to really start getting. A bigger community in there and start advertising it more which I haven't done too much of yet other than just on this show to you guys and so something worth checking out and with that I hope you enjoy today's episode 
Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name is Shane Moss. My guest today is Professor Barbara N. Horowitz, and I am so excited to talk to you, Barbara. This is one of those uh, podcasts where... This is like the second one I've ever done in um, in six years or so of podcasting where I'm like, I hope that you enjoy this because I already want to have you back on sometime. Uh, your your research is, is so incredible. You have two fantastic looking books, which hopefully I would have a chance to read by spring or something up next year my 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 reading list is getting longer by the day um but you your work checks so many boxes for this show and myself and my listeners uh we we talk about evolution on this show probably more than any other subject we uh talk all sorts about non-human animals who doesn't love non-human humans people go back and forth but non-human animals uh we love i i dated a veterinarian for years um i i i'm into zoology i i've been to a bunch of zoos and interviewed zoo vets this is just you you just got a lot of amazing stuff going on. So if you could, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? And I also don't want to forget to mention um, your books as well. So if you could uh, give a little introduction to those. Great. Well, I'm really excited to um, to be with you here and to have this uh, conversation, uh, evolution and non-human animals uh, <laughs> and veterinary medicine and human medicine, all those connections. My That's my favorite thing. I could talk about that, you know, endlessly. And some say I do. So um, I am a, um, well, I actually am a physician. I'm a cardiologist and, uh, and a psychiatrist, actually. I trained in both specialties. And I, I practiced medicine, um, cardiovascular medicine, as a professor at UCLA for over 20 years. And um, then I had a serendipitous experience, which was literally a call from one of the vets at the LA Zoo who had a a primate who had a cardiovascular problem. And they invited me to come and um, participate in the care. I was working, you know, under the supervision of the veterinarians. But, um, and my specialty within cardiology was imaging. So I got to the zoo and I imaged, uh, I did an an internal ultrasound on um, a chimpanzee. And to make a long story very short, you can take as much time as you like, Barbara. You're welcome to blab on and on as long as you. I already know about your work. It's endlessly fascinating. So please don't feel rushed. Oh, well, you're very kind. I just, um, <laughs> I, 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 the, the reason that this, the origin story is important, but then I kind of, I kind of touch it and I move off is that, um, you know, I, I had one of those experiences that, uh, I mean, literally changed my life. Now, that is such a trite thing to say. It's like a, that's somebody doing a, um, a like a, a mockery of a TED Talk or something. But it, it like literally happened to me and I wasn't looking for it. You which, got the headset on for like the motivational speaking and, <laughs> and everything, right? <laughs> but I, uh, yeah, no, so I, so I was, you know, I mean, 99% of the time I was taking care of human beings with heart attacks and, you know, high cholesterol very typical academic cardiologist teaching medical students and and all that. 
And, um, and then periodically I was going to the zoo and taking care of, you know, um, a gorilla with an aortic dissection, which is a tear in the aorta, which is a, you know, common, I mean, not common, but a not uncommon form of cardiovascular disease in humans. And um, there was um, a lion who had um, almost 800 cc's of fluid in her pericardial sac. That's the sac in which the heart is contained. And they were discussing the possibility of metastatic breast cancer in this lion. And, and so which was those kinds of diagnoses in non-human animals, it, it at that time blew my mind. Because mm -hmm. here I had spent all these years, decades studying human medicine. I was, you know, professor and I did all this teaching and research. And I really hadn't given much thought at all um, to whether the diseases that I was taking care of human beings also occurred in animals. I, I mean, you know, I knew about veterinarians, but mostly in my mind that was about veterinary medicine was about infectious diseases, zoonotic infections. So here I'm at the zoo and I'm hearing about metastatic breast cancer in a lion. And I'm hearing about, you know, osteosarcoma bone cancer that affects, you know, adolescents and young, um, young humans in many different, um, many different vertebrate species and about um, heart failure. And there's a form of heart, there's, a, there's something called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And it's the kind of um, heart problem that is responsible for athletes sometimes dying suddenly. So, you know, when you read about, uh, you know, a basketball player or a swimmer or a runner who dies suddenly, very often it's this problem where the, the ridge of tissue that connects the right and the left ventricle becomes too thick. It thickens and then there's this event, this sudden death event. Well, I started learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in kangaroos. And in, I mean, it, so I am having this parallel uh, universe experience. And um, what ended up happening over the course of uh, several years was I just, I just couldn't stop thinking about a how, how little I personally knew about the the pathology of non-human animals, about non-human animals in general, and how few of my colleagues knew and. It was, so you had people who were absolute experts, specialists, world acclaimed in breast cancer and leukemia, and they didn't realize that, um, you know, jaguars in captivity primarily have an elevated incidence of breast cancer. All of the big cats do. Mm -hmm. um, there may be connections to the BRCA1 mutation. Uh, leukemia, snakes and other reptiles are very vulnerable to certain leukemias. So here I was going to the zoo, coming back to UCLA and sharing this with my colleagues and finding that really there was this gulf between what physicians knew and what vets knew. And that ended up um, leading to my partnering up with the brilliant animal behaviorist, um, Catherine Bowers. And the two of us have spent now over a decade turning to the natural world to try to better understand human diseases, but also development. And, um, and so, you know, it's been a, it's been quite a ride because I look back, even talking about it to those early days, uh, what I, what I didn't know, one of the, 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 the things that I'm most fascinated in now, uh, is mental illness in other animals. And really? So this is something that now I remember I finished medical school and I yeah. trained, I did full training in psychiatry. I did a full residency at UCLA in psychiatry. I was chief resident uh, in one of the psychiatric. Barbara, um, you just had to go and do all of the things. You didn't want to save anything for the rest of us. I, huh? I, but <laughs> I, here, so I'm, I have that training and I 
really, um, I knew nothing about psychopathology in animals. And so one of the most mind-blowing and transformational experiences being at the zoo was just, and then it was the zoo at first, and then it was going to veterinary conferences and going into the field and talking to wildlife biologists and just reading and um, experiencing and asking uh, was the compulsive disorders in animals, the anxiety disorders in animals, the syndromes that are um, so phenomenologically similar, let's put it that way, between animals, for example, feather plucking disorder that happens in certain bird species and Mm. trichotillomania, which is a disorder where people sometimes pluck out their hair. So there are these these parallels that um, we kept encountering. And so ultimately, Zubiquity, which is the first book that Catherine and I wrote together, which was published in 2012, that book is half physical health and half mental health. Hmm. So uh, Amazing. it's... Yeah, it's been a, it's been quite a ride. And and what a what an incredible blind spot that that you've uh, uncovered with this as well. Like, oh, animals have organs and things as well. I wonder if there's anything that we could learn from this. And and by the way, for I think we should um, make sure and point a, a lot of a lot of people have a lot of mixed feelings um, about about zoos maybe you could talk a little bit i know from going um to zoos like i i had just just the incredible care and treatment that the animals get there i I was in the dallas zoo last december they're giving acupuncture uh to to some of their oh there there's basically many of their mammals are living such unnaturally long lives that that their spines are starting to fuse uh together and they're doing um acupuncture to help them uh through that so they can age more uh more comfortably as they live much much longer than they would um in the wild but but do you have any anything that you'd kind of like to say for that for for the listeners that have concerns sure. about zoos yeah, no, I, I would, but I want to also circle back to your question about the blind spot because uh, that's sure. super um, relevant. And I think people, I, I think it's kind of one of the most interesting, um, for my own journey has been really kind of the most interesting part of it is just realizing that I had a blindfold on and not even knowing it. And the experiencing of having that, experience of having that peeled back or pulling it back uh, as a scientist has just been so revelatory and uh, rewarding, but, and I, in fact, I start my classes, uh, my undergraduate, I teach undergraduates at Harvard and at UCLA, and I, the first day I always say, um, check your human exceptionalism at the door, because it's a blindfold, yeah. and it prevents us from recognizing connections that do exist, and that can, you know, really allow us to understand things better. But the zoo pieces, yeah, it's, I'm glad that you brought that up, and it's, um, and yeah, it is, it is, I mean, in some there's controversy about it in a way, but I think like all um, issues where there's emotion um, and complexity, uh, turning lights on is really the way to go and talking about the elements of it. The, what I, I am now deeply, I've, my journey has transformed me not only medically and scientifically, but it also has um, really caused me to feel that, you know, in addition to climate, uh, 
which obviously is is a central, many people think the central issue. Um, the loss of biodiversity yeah. um, and ecological degradation are, um, I mean, it's, it's right up there um, in terms yeah. of what I'm worried about and where I feel I, I can, um, where I'm working, um, I'm working to, I'm trying to um, deal with focus on that. And I think that that's where I kind of start when um, I think about the issue of zoos in that, uh, well, first of all, let's just say, of course, there are many examples um, historically and, and probably some now not, uh, you know, not really in the zoos or the, you know, aquaria that um, that I've encountered in, in North America, and, um, you know, which where the people who are working here are all about animal, all about animal conservation and all about animal welfare. And so there's, there's that. Now, of course, there are historical examples and examples of bad captivity. There's no way to deny that. And that is, you know, obviously very negative. And everyone watched the Tiger King at the start of quarantine this year too. So there's all, there's all these, which is a very, you know, these kind of sanctuaries that are, that aren't, terribly legitimate well, is a very different conversation too right. usually but, yeah but i'm glad you brought that up because the term sanctuary is so beautiful and so lovely and yeah. it sort of implies this sort of nirvana of like animal happiness right. but the issue of biodiversity really is absolutely central to this whole conversation because um, when i think about the future of animals the welfare of animals my first thoughts are all of us should be working tirelessly to reverse the ecological degradation, the deforestation, the habitat loss, all of the global um, factors that are making it impossible for so many species to survive in, in their, you know, where they come from, basically. And so we know that a significant percentage of the animals that are currently in zoos are, if not, you know, in highly endangered, you know, somewhat endangered, some are actually even extinct. And the point is that um, there is no, I think that people who care about animals, people who are, you know, have a, a moral sense of our responsibility um, to the world, to the larger world as humans, um, would all agree that we need to be considering not just human welfare, but welfare of other species. So the question is, if we as a species cannot get our act together to reverse these global changes that are taking the homes and the habitats away from the millions of other species, then we need to really be focused on the stewardship of the animals that have been entrusted to our care. Mm -hmm. And so I think the conversation can't be a simplistic, you know, bad and good. I think it's a complex conversation. that I think, frankly, among people who mostly really do care a lot about conservation, a lot about animals. So it's, it's complicated that way. Um, I, I will say that it's, uh, you know, it's also, I, I gave a lecture um, this morning to a group of psychiatrists. It was the American, one of the national psychiatric groups. And um, one of my pitches to my fellow physicians is that you know, we, our health, our human health is very much linked to the health of animals. We know that, right? Our, there's this blurring of the line between human and animal environments. We have more and more, you know, companion animals in our homes. Um, and so, and, and our exposures, right? Our exposomes, the human exposome and the non-human animal exposomes are becoming over, more and more overlapping. And so the health of humans and the health of animals has become highly entrained. And so 
for that reason, selfishly, we need to be thinking about animal health and God, educating ourselves about animal health. I was such an ignoramus and that's, that's not okay. I mean, I share that now because frankly, I had a pretty high view of myself professionally. So it's not like I, but I honestly, I just didn't know. And I think that a lot of the medical profession still doesn't know. And that is not good for the human patients, but there's this additional responsibility because I mean, so we've been on earth humans about 200 or 250,000 years. Right. And we've just, you know, our presence has been completely catastrophic for so many I mean, multitudes of other species. And so there's there's actually a moral responsibility that um, I think physicians um, ought to be kind of considering as part of the realm of what they're doing. You know, back in the 1970s and 80s when nuclear proliferation was a huge issue, right? Helen Caldicott, who was a physician, right? She started Physicians for Social Responsibility saying, hey, yeah, I mean, this is not your patient, you know, at the bedside, but the fate of humans, the fate of the planet is kind of a medical responsibility. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, that's it. I, I think there is a little bit of a misunderstanding too, for a lot of people where they think when they think about preserving species, they're like, Oh yeah. Okay. Well, pandas are cute and we should we should keep them alive not really understanding the full impact that biodiversity has on the entire planet and and it, especially even if you just care about humans and and you're very human centric and everything else the, the biodiversity has a really huge impact on our lives and our own uh sustainability um as i'm sure many of my listeners <laughs> already know um but what what's the um i was curious as you're as you're going and learning all of these things about all of these non-human animals, I, I imagine there's there's a lot of um, pretty easy parallels to make with with uh, say a lot of primates. What's what's some of the furthest species from humans that that you are drawing parallels to humans that yeah. you're learning something about a bird heart or or what have yeah. you. Right. So I, I, I love that question because, um, because I don't come from the field of, you know, I, I, I did not train to be a behavioral ecologist or, a, you know, I, I come from the human side and then I kind of made this leap. Um, you know, I kind of had to invent my own way of looking at things. And a lot of my colleagues, so now I, I have an appointment in human evolutionary biology and I, and in, at Harvard and at UCLA in ecology and evolutionary biology. And most of my colleagues have studied, you know, either one species or one taxa, very often primates, um, not always, but very often for the obvious reasons, right? Uh, this, a, a closer evolutionary relationship. Um, but what I, but because I didn't have that background, I started, um, I didn't start with that perspective. And instead, I was curious about um, how far leftward we could look. And if you're looking at a phylogeny, just turn your head to the left. If it's a horizontal phylogeny, how leftward we could look and still see those physical or physiologic connections. And the very 1.0 version of this was to just say, okay, breast cancer. So, okay, it has to be a mammal. So we'll go back a couple of hundred million years. But um, 
I would literally what, look for other mammals uh, where breast cancer had been reported in the, in the period of literature and then just kind of take a look at all these species and look for a common ancestor. And, you know, not that that necessarily proves anything, but just to kind of give myself a sense of, well, when did the vulnerability to these problems emerge? I mean, who was the first mammal with breasts? Uh, I mean, you know, circular thing to say. Um, and were they vulnerable to breast cancer? Why is it then that certain mammals seem to be seem to have less vulnerability than others? And those kinds of questions um, really in, instantly took me out of um, one narrow taxa and in, in a, and look, looking in a far broader way. The um, the other piece of that, of course, is this the new research that um, I've been involved with, looking at biodiversity as a source of solutions for complex human pathophysiology. So as a cardiologist, uh, I've been working on a problem that there's a, there's a heart failure that happens in older people. It's um, caused by hypertension, high blood pressure. So if you just talk about the US, there are, you know, our, the demographics, we're getting older, high blood pressure is very common. And when the left ventricle, which is the ventricle that pumps blood to the systemic circulation, like any muscle, when it faces a higher workload, it starts to hypertrophy, it starts to thicken. And as it starts to thicken, it starts to fibrose. There's, there are these changes that happen to its architecture that make it um, stiff. And what that means is, even though it can contract well during systole, which is that squeezing phase, during that relaxation phase, it's too stiff and the pressure doesn't fall. So this, the pressure inside the heart, in the left heart, rises and rises and rises into the left atrium, into the pulmonary circulation, and that causes heart failure, shortness mm. of breath. So um, I, and by the way, I'm trying to focus my research on issues related to women's health specifically. So it turns out this form of heart failure is now the leading subtype of heart failure in women in the United States. So I thought, well, what, you know, what animals, so the, the, the concept of turning to nature, to kind of thinking of biodiversity as just multitudes of um, vari variations in all of these physiologic components. I mean, you know, every single, you know, big, large, what other animals have ventricles that face higher, quote unquote, than normal pressure. It's normal for them. And of course, easily the answer is the giraffe, which, you know, every medical student is taught that the giraffe has a thick ventricle because, you know, she needs to pump blood from the, you know, down here, the heart is between the legs, up to that brain a few meters, you know, up there. And it's true. But there's another interesting reality about giraffe, and that is that they are prey animals. The leading cause of death among, you know, giraffe on the savanna is predation. Mm -hmm. And so imagine the selective pressure on giraffes to not have shortness of breath and exercise intolerance, the precise symptoms that human beings who have thickened ventricles because of high blood pressure have. And in fact, what um, 
what we've my lab's been working on and um, what what I'm very excited about is um, is finding the adaptations these um, the differences between the okapi heart for example and the giraffe heart the okapi doesn't have a long neck right and the modern giraffe and the modern okapi they shared a common ancestor about 11 and a half million years ago and as the giraffe cervical vertebrate enlarged and that neck got longer and longer for you know reasons that have to do with improved fitness and there are several theories about that this new selective pressure emerged and as a consequence of these of you know of this of evolutions you know iterative over and over there is this evolved adaptation that is essentially a roadmap for this for solving this form of heart failure in in humans so i i love the idea of reconceiving biodiversity as something that is alive and relevant and so much more than just looking at the beautiful world and experiencing and appreciating it all that is fantastic but really recognizing that it the treasure that it is is also contained um in a at a much more reductive level so mm. that's a lot of fun bet mgm welcomes you with a special offer on the nba simply place a ten dollar money line wager on today's game if either team hits a three-pointer you'll win two hundred dollars in free bets regardless of your wager's outcome just use bonus code champion 200 when you make your bet bet mgm is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the nba and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks download the app or go to betmgm.com and use bonus code champion 200 to win two hundred dollars in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. In... In terms of um, some mental health issues, are there any things with, with um, or not even just mental health, just generally speaking, are there, are there particular issues with some of the challenges of um, uh, you know, animals in zoos having a limited amount of space, the, the hurdles that, that zookeepers need to face in terms of making sure that they have proper, like, you know, sloths, for example, are very finicky with their diet or or certain animals that need X amount of space or you, you, often you go to a zoo and they show all of the different, you know, they give elephants the various toys to play with and, and things to keep them stimulated and active. Are there are there things that we can learn specifically about animals in in captivity that actually might translate to some of the modern human problems as as we kind of tend to be domesticating ourselves in ways and in sitting in cubicles and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I just uh, I have to say that that if people have a you know there's um. When we look at animal behavior, 
right? Uh, there's a natural fear. I think we've all it's, all, it's been ingrained into all of us to not anthropomorphize, right? I remember when I was probably in seventh grade and we read Animal Farm, George Orwell's Animal Farm, and my teacher said, don't anthropomorphize, right? So um, I think there's this natural, or at least I had um, a real hesitation about um, when I saw animal behaviors, whether it was on a farm or in the wild or in a zoo, of making a connection, it seemed like potentially scientifically a problem. But what I did is I went back to the definition of anthropomorphism. And um, if you if you kind of look at it in, in a dictionary, it's the projection of human characteristics onto a non-human animal. But that's actually not, I think, the right definition. The right definition or better definition is the projection of human characteristics onto an animal in ways that aren't scientifically justifiable. Mm. And as we're moving into an era where we recognize that psychiatric disease is a brain disease, it's a, it's a biological brain disease, the way um, heart failure is a cardiovascular disease, right? As we begin to do that, um, and as we begin to, I mean, gosh, in the 1970s, we did not have comparative genomics and molecular phylogenetics and all of and neuroimaging, all of these um, advances that are showing us how connected we actually are. That now when we see behavior that has similarities or is in some way phenomenologically similar, that we can actually, um, I mean, if there's an error to be made, it's its not going to be anthropomorphizing. It's going to be the, the human exceptionalism that sort of has been at the basis of, of that fear. But um, but the point is, yeah, there are there are behaviors that animals show, but not just in exhibit, but not just in zoos. You see it in lots of um, environments. In our homes, you can see it um, even in the wild. But let's focus on the case of, of zoos because you asked that. So one of the things that um, that animal behaviorists do and, and zoos do a lot of um, thinking about and work around is enrichment. They want to make sure that animals, you know, our, our mental health is so any animal's mental health is going to be related to activities, opportunities, environments. And so um, the recognition that social animals shouldn't be isolated because that can trigger, you know, stereotypy, sort of repetitive behaviors that are pathological, um, so that there's an attempt to kind of create a social environment. And that, um, that there's a certain amount of um, play that needs to happen and a certain amount of open space for certain species. All of those things are, um, you know, this is this whole world of animal enrichment. This occupies a lot of time, energy, focus, and innovation um, among people who are in, in that field. The I do think we can bring some of that back to humans and in all kinds of ways. Um, as you said, in, in many ways, our species is more captive than we are wild. Um, we are uh, everything from sort of the environments in which we live, how we access our food, um, the predictable nature of our interactions with others. All that stuff is, is more captive than it is wild. And one of the biggest ways in which we are more captive than wild is our relationship to food and our weight. And so one of the things that's interesting in zoos is that um, I think ecologists and people who think about environments recognize that part of dietary health and physical health is thinking about seasonality, 
and the microbiome. And that part of eating is um, the planning and the strategy and the desire and the going for it and the failing and then the failing again and the failing again because you know predators carnivores fail far more often than they succeed and then the getting of it and then the tearing into it and the you know the sensory the pleasure reward all of that 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 sort of you know we evolved we animals evolved as eaters in that context where getting food was dangerous um, and thrilling and critical and very dramatic, actually. I mean, even talking about it. And yet, you know, you look at how we eat now, right? It's mm. fast food is the opposite of that. Anyway, I think that people in the, um, I mean, I've gone to conferences with uh, people who are experts in zoo nutrition and animal um animal behavior in relation to food. And they get that. They get the importance of that kind of stimulation. And I've actually brought that back, even with my own family, to, um, I mean, I was always busy. I was a busy cardiologist when I had kids and my husband was super busy and we were just like running, 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 running. And, you know, I was not doing all of the components of making meals for sure. But I actually think it's part of the pleasure of eating, it, for me anyway. And I know that I was influenced by watching these descriptions of, of how animals eat in two different settings, when it's just given to them versus when they work. And that actually has influenced how I think about food and how I have my kids. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, yeah, so personally, that's for the change. Uh, you make them chase after their meals a little bit. I do, or... they have to rip into it with the, tear the fat <laughs> off the bone. <laughs> That's fun. What kind of uh, are 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 you interested at all in? Uh, mind you, when I ask this question, that I haven't actually read your books yet. Um, are are you interested in kind of any vestigial um, organs or behaviors at all? I think I was just reading something the other day about hiccups and and them uh, and and possibly tracing it back to fish. Right. And and something or other about the way fish gills work and and the swallowing of air and this is like and and it tends like uh, preemie children tend to have hiccups more because they haven't fully developed and um, I I don't know exactly how true that is but I, are are there do you have some it's it's such a fascinating uh, one of one of my favorite things is like these kind of holdovers I remember reading about. Um, these sea turtles that that swim from the west coast of Africa to the east coast of of uh, South America, and they are confused about why they would go all this way to lay their eggs. And the the thinking is is that it was because during Pangaea it was perhaps just a river, and there was an evolutionary benefit to swimming across to lay the eggs, and it got further and further. Each generation just had to swim a yard further or whatever, and you skip forward a million years or a few million years, and and now you have to travel this this uh great distance that from like a kind of creator point of view or something like like you wouldn't design something to uh, uh, to do that the the turtles the turtles would if if they knew how to turn that off would probably be better off just hanging out wherever they're born and and not straying as far 
Yeah, no, I love that. Um, one of the in ubiquity, well, first of all, the, the, the new book that Catherine and I wrote is called Wildhood. And that is, it's really um, the result of a five-year study we did looking at adolescence across the animal kingdom. We looked at um, the transition from the onset of puberty to uh, sort of mature adulthood. And we started just with chordates, we were just gonna do vertebrates, but we actually did include crustaceans ultimately. So it's sort of the 600 million year history of adolescence. And I'm not being- <laughs> Oh, is that all? I, it's, that, a lot, that, it's a long six, time. 600 million, you're like, that's enough. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've had adolescence, but it, it can feel it can feel that long, trust me. Uh, but yeah, we, um, and we, and so our emphasis for years has been on development, sort of looking at how far left can we go and yeah. still see similarities in development. And sort of we sort of talk about this horizontal tribe of adolescents, and the kinds of commonalities um, are so <laughs> they were. I use I'm using this term too much, but mind blowing for me. Even though I now spend all of my time looking comparatively. And I think, again, it's because some of the stuff just seems so uniquely human, human, right? We learn about puberty and we learn about like virginity loss and we learn about like peer pressure all through this human cultural context. And we, at least, I, I never thought about puberty in a crustacean or a fish or a bird or a reptile. So, uh, but five years later, you know, I know a lot about it. And one of the interesting uh, pieces of just sort of related to the hiccup story or the, or the turtles is um, when there's, there's a cardiac um, problem. Most adolescents are obviously very healthy, thank goodness, but some do actually faint when they get scared. And uh, I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but it, some kids have it more than others, but I don't you may have known think someone. I've ever fainted. I I was uh, I the first memory that pops up into my mind is I was at a buddy's wedding, and his uh, I was in his wedding, and we're standing up there in the sun, and his brother fainted. Right and hit his head and then i started thinking yeah. about that that's, and i'm that's thinking it. about it so that's much it. that it. i almost fainted right. so myself that, that's called vasovagal syncope big fancy word but yeah what's happening physiologically is there's this um paradoxical it's not paradoxical but this is paradoxical uh that's seemingly what, paradoxical seemingly well for years i used to teach medical yeah. students that it was paradoxical but then i took off my blindfold of human exceptionalism and then but oh my goodness, look at this. So it, what happens is that this scary thing, like in your case, seeing somebody faint or blood, so some people, the sight of blood, the sight of a needle or, you know, can trigger it. Um, there is a paradoxical slowing of the heart as opposed to what you would expect, which would be, you know, the heart speeding up fight flight. So there's this parasympathetic slowing of the heart instead of the sympathetic acceleration. And that leads to the brain not getting enough blood, boom, your buddy's skull hit the floor yeah so um so anyway that sort of seems like that seems that's a real head scratcher why <laughs> would we have this physiology that will allow us to think and again if you're only if you have an anthropocentric lens then the whole thing seems ridiculous and doesn't make not, any not sense. a lot of utility we're not having a lot of like fainting contests see who can be the best <laughs> fainter exactly it it's not even you can't even invoke sexual selection unless yeah, so, so so one of the things that um that we started doing is we started looking leftward and we did a systematic review to identify every single 
vertebrate species in whom um, this thing called alarm bradycardia, which means like fear-induced slowing of the heart, had been seen. And we created this phylogeny. I mean, it was fish, amphibians, reptiles, lots of birds, lots of non-primate mammals. Goats? Yeah, well, goats, uh, fainting goats is a little different. That's myotonic, but... Well, what, what's what's going on there? Tell uh, I I better know that one before I start because I love those fainting goats yeah, and I, they, I don't want to be spreading bad information. So, so if we can quick deviate just sure. to so the goats have off. myotonic fainting and that's okay. myos that's more the muscle. <clears throat> so they're the what's causing them to faint is not a slowing of the heart like this other kind, um, <laughs> but but stress can induce that in them and those videos are. <clears throat> incredible Amazing. actually spoiler alert but for the students who take my class i sometimes show that video for the final and they have to i show a series of videos of animals sort of fainting they're not all fainting and then they have to do a tinbergian analysis and sort of figure out what's going on but the point is is that slowing the heart down and then becoming immobile um is really an, an excellent adaptation if you are a young vertebrate who hasn't the strength or experience to outrun your predator. Crypsis, it's called tonic immobility, and you see it across, you even see it in insects, becoming still in the face of threat. So the slowing of the heart is really just the mechanism that leads to the stillness. And I have video now after video of wild animals, mostly young, fainting. They're not fainting, but they are um, limp and uh, seemingly done. And a predator releases the grip and boom, they they escape. So there's this um, very wonderful, clear story that you can tell connecting slowing of the heart to fitness benefit, you know, across so many species. And then you, all of a sudden you're back to our little tiny 200,000 year old species. And yeah, we have retained autonomic physiology that was very adaptive for our animal ancestors for hundreds of millions of years. Not so much today. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, sometimes I, sometimes I look at my horrifying email inbox and I just kind of go right down. I pass yeah. out, which I find to be pretty adaptive sometimes. Well, uh, did, were you ever driving your car and you haven't, I mean, like I had a terrible experience where I was driving and the, <clears throat> a, a truck crossed the midline and, you know, thank God everything. But I, it was around the time that we were writing this and I realized I had a vagal, a parasympathetic event. I felt, I mean, I didn't faint, but yeah, that's, that is that feeling of having, it's that your sympathetic nervous system is being suppressed and your parasympathetic, that slowing, that vagal tone is rising. So interesting. I I remember I, I only went skydiving once. I'd like to go again. And actually the main reason why I haven't been again is because I found it to be rather boring <laughs> and like when i tra- there was just something about like i i built it up a bunch in my head i was so excited uh you know i got a little nervous jumping out of the plane and which is what i was after i wanted that like you know that good acute stress that's the stress that we're after not that 
chronic everyday uh, stuff that we got to deal with. And, uh, and that's what I'm after. I jump, I'm flipping around through space, and I was just like, huh. This is very boring, and 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 then I and then I actually I remember because they didn't tell me that there's like a lead parachute that comes out first, and before the and so there's like a split second the lead parachutes out and I'm like, this isn't slowing down fast enough. I wonder if something's gone wrong. And I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Oh, okay. And that got me going a little bit, but there was like a little bit of a slowing there where it's just like, well, nothing else <laughs> you can do in this, in this situation. We, uh, for wildhood, we looked at risk-taking adolescent animals. <clears throat> we were really curious, you know, cause we know like- Really? There, there's like the Tony Hawk of, of <laughs> animals? Well, they do things, some of the things that you see wild animal adolescents do make like the worst episode of Jackass look like a poetry reading. I mean, it's pretty shocking. Oh my goodness. And they, one of the things that um, they do is a lot of animals, and this is from, we found this in invertebrates, we found it in fish, birds, um, meerkat, Thompson gazelle. They uh, sometimes approach their predators instead of fleeing from them. It's called predator inspection. And I have, <laughs> I, I showed videos of this. It's, it's so interesting. You see them, they do it by the way, with conspecifics. So it's kind of a safety in numbers, right? They approach, you see these Thompson gazelle, you know, in the background, and you see these three cheetahs, which is one of their main predators in the foreground. And you see the young Thompson gazelle moving toward the cheetah and stopping. And then several other cheetahs are there and they're looking at them. Those gazelles, they really, they are like the Steve-O of the animal king. They are so, they're always taunting with the jumping too. Well, this, yeah, the, the spring box uh, so and I, the I, I, I cut you off, but, no, but, but, but go the, on. But that's, yeah, it's the point is that, and so people have looked at predator inspection and said, what is it? Is it mobbing? You know, when animals come together <laughs> to sort of, you know, say to their predator, hey, you know, there's 10 of us, there's three of you, get the hell out of here. Or is this a learning behavior? And you see it in meerkats, you see it in bats. We documented a lot of it and put a lot of it into wildhood. But it is a safety learning behavior. And it to summarize the whole thing, when you're inexperienced as an, a young animal and you're going to disperse from your natal group, naivete, predator naivete is death. So you've when, got to, when you're around your group before you set out on on and try to make right. it on your own, take yeah. all of your chances when you when your parents are watching. That's right. Take take your chances when you've got others around. There's safety mm -hmm. in number. And, and what's interesting is that um, in humans, we human adolescents are more likely to take risks when they're with their buddies, which is one of the reasons why, at least in California, when your kids get there, they get a learner's permit at about like whatever it is, 15 or 15 and a half. And for like six months or a year, there's all these rules. And one of them is you can't drive with your buds in the car. You can drive with an adult, but you can't. And the reason for that is the statistical, I mean, the risk-taking threshold goes down. And I wonder whether that is a vestige of this, um, <laughs> this adaptive That's lovely. safety you know, behavior. Yeah. Gaining well, knowledge. well, in in Europe, you can drink, or uh, a lot of states, you can like drink with your parents before yeah. you're allowed to drink right. legally. And... So it's so funny. I I was thinking about that. Um, we were in Europe, and I was thinking about that because one of my Danish colleagues was 
saying, oh, you Americans, you're so uptight about alcohol and our kids, we don't have that problem because our kids learn when they're younger. Um, and I remember when we were writing this book and I was thinking, gosh, my kids were already kind of on the old, you know, 19, 20. And I was thinking, I wonder what I what might have done differently. And I remember that um, there was a night when my son wanted to practice driving and it was, I was in California at the time. There's not a lot of weather, but you know, when it rains, it's, you know, it's, it's real and it was lightning. And, and I said, ah, you know, Charlie, let's just, it's dark. It's super rainy. Let's skip it. You know, maybe it's a little dangerous. And I think back now about that. I think, you know what, that is exactly what I should have done with him. I've been driving for decades. I, he would have had that experience, you know, a little dangerous, but with me there kind of, so I didn't even think about it in those terms. So um, yeah, there's, mm. And where were you in Europe? Because those Scottish will try to trick you into thinking that they like to tell themselves a story that they're responsible drinkers. But I, I, I spent a month in Edinburgh and pulled multiple blacked out zombies out of the, uh, out of the street before they got ran over. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. By the way, alcohol is another really interesting question um, that, uh, you know, in our first book, we wrote about we read a chapter called Zuphoria about, you know, substance seeking in the natural world. And mm. we sort of did a little bit of a Mythbusters. You know, some of the stories are like, yeah, I don't believe it. And what if you of, give a spider LSD? <laughs> Look at the web it will build. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But, but on the other hand, you know, obviously fruit and vegetable matter does ferment. And there is going to be, you know, it's going to get ethanolized. And so, you know, you do have animals who are consuming. And by the way, fermented material is going to be a little bit calorically denser. So there's mm -hmm. probably some advantage to it and sweeter. But um, so it raises all kinds of questions. You know, there are real instances of these waxwing birds that become, you know, they intoxicated and they fly in buildings and, uh, and die. I mean, there's, there's that, which is obviously maladaptive. But there is this kind of way of thinking about um, substances and addiction in the context of biodiversity too. Again, this thing that seems so uniquely human, it seems so um, culturally like created and, and, and yet there's this neurobiology that makes us vulnerable to, you know, intoxication that exists yeah. in all these other animals. I imagine there's probably a little bit of sexual selection in there too, with uh, disinhibiting some of those <laughs> psychological uh, wow. <laughs> worn, <laughs> barriers that would normally. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm sure that humans aren't the first mammals to think. Man, these kids seem to be a little bit of a of a pain in the butt and rather costly, uh, but you know, sex feels good enough. But but I I'm sure the the alcohol knocks out some of those uh, inhibitions as well, or or other other substances. I, it's not just alcohol. It, it seems like there's a few. Well, uh, what, what is it? Isn't that like aren't what? What's the one? Isn't it like koala bears or something like that that they say are basically just like high all of the time? Whatever that means. Yeah, I know. I mean, that's again, like a lot of the stuff is is. I mean, you couldn't have an animal who's survived who's was really had impaired an impaired sensorium. I mean, you know, if I yeah. were a predator, I'd be like, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm going there. <laughs> I don't think that. But um, yeah, but just because you brought up sex, I'm going to just go there for a second. Sure. So we. Um, 
I mean, there's so much that uh, we've learned about animal sexuality and human sexuality. And it, it, in, in Zubiquity, we wrote a chapter called Roargasm, where at that point, it was really just a lot about um, the wide range of you know, sexual experiences and, and spectrum sexuality in the natural world. And I think that story is pretty well known now. Um, but it's still really interesting. And um, I think there's a lot of a lot of meaning in exploring it. One of the um, one of the things that I do with uh, students now is that we read um, behavioral ecology literature about um, oral sex in bats, both mega bats and fruit bats. So we have uh, four or five articles on. Amazing. Yeah, well, except I'm going to send you the articles there and, and we do a Tinbergian analysis. So I no longer say, oh, you know, there is you know, non-procreative sex in nature because that's like an old story. What's interesting well, is... Well, giraffes are, are very... There's all sorts of stuff going on there, every, right? Like you a know lot what? of homosexual behavior. Of course, and, of course when we start yeah. to look, there's just every... If you can think of it, 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 it exists. And so there's this... Um, you know, I think we're at a point now, I hope, where we don't have to be scared about, you know, turning to the natural world for insights about, about human life. Like there was a time when people would say, oh, you know... If you find something in nature, then people will think that that is normalizing or naturalizing. That's ridiculous. We know infanticide exists in the right. animal. What doesn't justify it? We know that necrophilia does. We know cannibal. No. Right. And in fact, what I know now, just having you know spent so many years doing this, and I know a fraction of what actually exists, is if you and I can think of it, it exists in the natural world. So when someone comes back and reports on something, that is one species at one time and what their filter has shown them. The reality yeah. is that there is just a huge amount of biodiversity when it comes to sexuality. But right. the, the common this compass- is, That is the weird thing with that they, that, that some people on, on first glance kind of try to put on evolution that it's somehow like justifying it. Like uh, like evolutionary theorists are saying, like, well, look at bed bugs. Therefore, I can stab you in the abdomen and try right. to impregnate your your right. stomach. Or well, it's bad science. I mean, if you identify it in a species, all that means is that in that particular population at that moment, you saw that behavior. There's right. no reason to generalize that, even to all bed bugs, let alone all insects, let alone all humans. It's that is. The filter. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, all I knew about wildlife was documentaries, right? We didn't go any. I mean, we went to the national parks. That was pretty cool. But we never, you know, today people go to Africa. And so, I mean, and there was no YouTube, right? So what did I know? I knew what David Attenborough or who was it, Marlon Perkins or whatever all those guys were. And I loved those shows. Mm -hmm. But you know what? They were all guys and from one culture. And, you know, even when you're well-intentioned, you can only find what you're looking for, right? So um, I think that now we, we know that uh, wildlife biologists no longer have that heteronormative lens, um, fortunately, and, and a lot of the normative lenses are, are going away. And, so I, and plus there's a greater, uh, the diversity of biologists has changed too. Of course, we're all constrained by the fact that we're humans and, you know, we still... But, but even so, I think that what, what we're reporting is the natural world is changing because the people who are doing the reporting uh, is changing. Yeah. And who knows what wonderful positions we're missing out on if we only looked to the animal kingdom. 
we, we could really be. <laughs> Yeah, I'm at, are you going back to sex again? <laughs> I am going back well, to sex. Well, by the way, by the way, you're you're making a joke, and now I'm going to be super boring about it. I, but but there's so much. Foreplay. I don't believe that. There's so much foreplay in the animal world, and if you, and we actually study this in one of um, the classes I'm in right that I'm teaching right now, we look at um, the adaptive benefit of certain pre-copulatory behaviors, and you know in. For example, in the in the bat articles, there's um we study a uh, there was a study that was done on uh, ground squirrel masturbation and um, there are various. <laughs> you said this <laughs> I'm glad I'm entertaining. You. This is what my this is my but the point is oh, that come on okay. what what's boring about ground squirrel <laughs> masturbation? Shame on any listener that's <laughs> bored by okay, ground. <laughs> the point is that there is there we can ask that we can. We can put a Tinbergian frame on it. We can ask, you know, what is the mechanism? What is the developmental perspective? What is the adaptive benefit? What is the phylogeny of masturbation? And um, in Zubiquity, we write about that. In Wildhood, we we look at that as well because there are developmental uh, characteristics. But as we start to do that, um, it simply is telling. I mean, we're just really reporting scientifically on what exists and and the reason that there's a giggle attached to it is that it seems so uniquely human because we've heard about it and experienced it through human culture and you know and and yet you take two seconds and you you take a look at the just mammals you take a look at the neurobiology and the neurophysiology of erection and erectile detumescence and you look at at orgasm across species i mean all of these things are the physiology that underlies it from the the neurobiology at a brain level down to the sequence of muscular contraction add to that the male and female homology that exists yeah. in the first few so endlessly of- fascinating i mean i think there is this inclination to think of this stuff as like lowbrow or what I, I mean i had uh, I, I, I remember i had um uh you know I, I've, I've had uh, Deb, Deb Lieberman was uh, who I, you just wrote a paper with was uh, with s- the other person that I was like, can I have you on twice before I even interviewed her the first time? Um, because I, I knew her stuff was going to be so fascinating and and talking about something like feces. So it might might seem like, oh, you know, little kids make jokes about poop or whatever. But but to understand where our disgust mechanisms come from and why there's not some. Uh, you know, there, there's nothing, there's nothing like natural or right about being uh, driven from or inclined. Why, why a dung beetle thinks dung is the most uh, wonderful thing in the entire world, and most species try to avoid it. These are all in, uh, not only incredibly fascinating, but in, have important implications yeah. for understanding this existence, hey. our consciousness. I think we should, if you want to get high school students interested in evolution, talk about sex. And you know what? Don't, yeah. not, not the, you know, we can, we can talk about the, talk about the pleasure of sex. Okay. So why is sex pleasurable? Mm-hmm. Um, why is, why, did, why does pleasure exist anyway? What's adaptive about pleasure? And then you can begin to break it down and, and begin thinking about, you know, rewards and, and what kinds of activities are fitness enhancing. And all of a sudden you're talking about evolution and you're you're actually talking about physiology, and you're talking about um, a, a lot of high level concepts. But it not only does it make sense. And by the way, um, uh, David Linden wrote a wonderful book about ten years ago called The Compass of Pleasure, 
which, um, and he really lays this out, this argument that, <clears throat> that pleasure evolved to support fitness enhancing, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, actions. But uh, yeah, I mean, pleasure itself is such a, a great way of, of understanding animal motivation. And we get so giggly about pleasure in our own lives. Like we're, we're guilty about it and we're embarrassed about it. And, um, and yet it is an evolutionary legacy. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's so funny. Even, even saying like, why, do, why does sex feel good? And then once you know why sex feels, here's something I find myself thinking about. If sex feels good to, um, to increase sexual behavior to then lead to more reproduction, why doesn't sex feel even better? And you know, there there would be this range, this spectrum. There there are people who who which it probably does. There might be, you know, there's there's certainly people where where um, people claim to be sex addicts or whatever else that yeah. maybe have uh, that, right. uh, this and, and which brings us to maybe the utility of uh of masturbation do you think do you think that perhaps the, all of the competing drives that we have it was a way of like satiating well, that so you can that squirrel can yeah, go out it's funny i'm gonna be super a- super um nerdy nerdy <laughs> academic on you and i'm gonna say you're gonna you reel me in a little bit <laughs> but <aren't you? laughs> sorry i've got this <laughs> excuse me um, but the the ground squirrel paper actually offers two or three adaptive hypotheses and then sort yeah. of takes a look at the data and sort of says which one of the hypotheses is supported. And <clears throat> one of the hypotheses which was not supported was that subordinates, it was a way of <clears throat> subordinates who didn't have access to mates to sort of diffuse their sexual anxieties or, or tension. And that that was actually not supported. By that particular study, it doesn't mean that it's mm-hmm. not the case. But yeah, I mean, I just think there's a way of... of um, oh, no, I was just saying it gets your mind off of... Like you have this competing sex drive and then you have like a drive to get food and and you need to like... So if, you, if you're if you a squirrel and you bust a nut, you can go out and get right. more nuts <laughs> yeah. more readily without being distracted by by your, your you know sex what? drive potentially. That's a, that reminds me of a fantastic video that went viral right before the outbreak, as I recall. And somebody, I don't know who filmed it, but it ended up on a Twitter feed. And the caption was, when natural selection trumps sexual selection. And yeah. have you seen that video? Uh-uh. No. Oh my. So you see these two ungulates. I don't know if they're impala. I, I don't know what they are. And they're two males and they're they're like kind of locked in this battle it's very dramatic and you see in the foreground some other animals watching the two of them doing this and then all of a sudden you see the animals in the foreground stand up and way in the distance there's a spot that's like you can't even tell that it's moving but the animals in the front the ungulates they take off but the two guys are like right this is there this is sexual selection, right? They are having a dominance fight, I guess. And as they're doing this, they are absolutely oblivious. They are so oblivious to what else is going on. They're oblivious to the females and whoever else left. But we are watching this spot get closing. I can't imagine two guys being oblivious because of of their sex drive. But then, I mean, I cannot even tell. When you see this thing, you're going to be immediately texting me. But it gets, and then all of a sudden you realize it's a lion. And I I think it's a male. I can't remember if it's a male. 
And then you literally see they, at the 11th hour, now 11.59, they spot it. One of them gets away. The other one is dead. And yeah. it's what it, when natural selection trumps sexual selection, I was like, I don't know who thought of that caption, but I love yeah. it. So, yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, uh, at the start of, uh, at the start of COVID you, and, um, and I, I just mentioned to the paper that you wrote recently. It was actually why I wanted to, uh, I, I, I looked up all the names on there. Half, half of, uh, there was, uh, 10 different authors, half of them had already been on the show. And so I figured it was good company. And, uh, and, and that's how I found you, but, um, it's called, I'll, I'll put a link to this, um, on, on, uh, the new YouTube channel. And of course here, the, here we are podcast.com website, but the pandemic exposes in human nature, 10 evolutionary insights. I love this as someone that's an advocate for, um, evolution communication. This is, a, a, a another, another common misconception that people have is like, Okay, great. We evolved. We learned to stand upright. <laughs> Terrific. Done. What's that have to do with me? Right. And um, and and evolution and and the things that built our sexual drives or our, our, our survival drives, our anxieties, everything else along the way have huge implications on our present life. Uh, what what uh, with COVID going on? What what sort of uh, what sort of things spring to mind for you? What what, yeah. what what does kind of your lens on COVID differ from some of the other stuff you see out there? Right. So um, they asked me to write about adolescence because of wildhood. And I've been talking a lot about uh, adolescence across the animal kingdom. And one of the things that uh, we know is not all animal, essence, animal adolescents, but a lot of them will disperse. And by disperse, we mean leave their natal burrow or cave or den and set off on their own. And when you disperse as an adolescent animal, uh, you face a lot of challenges. One is finding enough food for yourself, right? Starvation is actually a leading cause of death for dispersing adolescent animals. Um, and of course, predation, if you're targeted because you're easy prey. But one of the other challenges is infection. So if you think about what are the kinds of things that can kill you as an animal, human or otherwise, uh, predation, starvation, infection, trauma, um, you know, extremes of temperature, et cetera, et cetera. Well, infection's a biggie. And one of the ways that uh, animals, including ourselves, uh, are prepared for leaving our natal environments um, at every stage is through something called immune priming, right? We are exposed to microorganisms that help to shape our immune systems. Mm -hmm. And so that is sort of um, interesting. So when mom, when the mother bird or the father bird brings food back to the nest, um, not only is the food itself coming, all the microorganisms in the environment are coming and the young nestlings are having their immune systems shaped um, and optimized, right, for mm -hmm. sort of tailor-made for the environment into which they're going to enter. Well, one um, really exciting um, uh, piece of research that's been, you know, developing over the last five years is um, the close connection between the microbial world, the microbiome, and brain development. And just to take a, a, a step back, so 
there are cells in our brains and the brains of other many other animals that um, are called microglial cells. And in the brain, these microglial cells are the um, the landscape architects. They are the cells that you know do the synaptic pruning and um, the the myelinization and and these these um, actions that shape literally shape the brain, create um, the the, the structure, but that lead to the cognitive differences, temperamental differences, um, all of these, um, all of the brain related functions that an organism is going to have is going to be determined in large part by this synaptic pruning. Remember, during neurodevelopment, um, synaptic pruning is a large, is, is how you know, we go from being, you know, our, how our brains get really shaped and defined and other animals as well. So these microglial cells in the brain, it turns out they actually are immune cells. They are immune cells that migrated from the yolk sac in the first weeks of development. And so they're actually macrophages, which are these immune cells, and they've, they're in the brain, and, and yet they are fundamentally immune cells. And so there is this connection between the microbial world and these immune cells in the brain that are actually shaping the brain, optimizing the brain. Now, we know, of course, that the gut microbiome, the enteric microbiome, you know, all of those trillions of non-human, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi that live in the, in the microbial environment, it turns out they are in direct and constant, not only communication with the microglial cells, but according to a nature neuroscience paper a couple of years ago, they are in constant, uh, they are constantly controlling, they are deeply influencing the microbial communities of the host's enteric system are deeply influencing these microglial cells, where they prune, where they, this is, um, for the last couple of years, I've been really captivated because this is means that the immune system is helping to shape behavior, mm -hmm. that the microbial environment, which helps to shape the immune system, is helping to shape brain biology and behavior. Now, this actually makes a tremendous amount of sense. Um, one, I think, reasonable and testable adaptive hypothesis is that, um, that the microbial environment, that, that is information that a young animal, um, it, that is valuable for a young animal to have. And to have behavior, there are immune behaviors, right, that are shaped by that environment, that that's, that's a powerful uh, piece of information. Just the way we think of the epigenome translating what the environment is like and, you know, telling the organism that's developing how to turn genes on and off to optimize the phenotype for the world into which it's going to enter. This microbial environment, right, there's information there that is being communicated to the microglia, which are in, involved in, in shaping the brain. So this is really interesting. So knowing that, all of a sudden, here are the kinds of questions we can ask. So first of all, um, we know that microbial exposures during adolescence and earlier in life during neurodevelopment sometimes can be very negative, right? We know that um, 
there is an association between exposure to certain viruses uh, early in life, prenatally, and rates of schizophrenia. We, we know that some viral infections um, can lead to, you know, all kinds of very catastrophic consequences. On the other hand, we know that it is important, certainly in other, in laboratory animals, and there's some evidence in humans, that microbial exposures are critical to brain development. Abiotic mice don't develop appropriately from a, from a neurological perspective. They don't have the right social behavior. So there is this mm. information from the microbial world. And there, it's, the, one of the, um, I think the human side of it is that we know that, that um, exposure to antibiotics um, early in life, even during pregnancy, um, changes the microbiome and changes the risk of some neuropsychiatric disorders in humans, right? There's this, so we're beginning to see that there's this, this um, connection between the microbiome and brain function, brain development. And we know that the organisms that a young animal is exposed to is going to influence his or her microbiome. So um, what I've been thinking about with quarantine is this idea that, you know, of course, there are some adolescents who are going to sneak out and do what they're doing. But, you know, all in all, we have schools closed. We have a population-wide macro alteration in the amount of social exposure adolescents have. And as a consequence, they are being, um, in general, I'm generalizing, exposed far more to the natal microbial environment that they, than they would be if they were in 10th grade and, you know, going out here, there, probably having, you know, whatever, whether they're having sexual experiences or whatever they're there. So it is, um, I don't know what, whether it will be a positive or a negative. There's certainly some positives. I think there are kids who would have been exposed to viruses that could have caused problems. Um, but, but there's going to be a difference in, in who population quarantine, generation quarantine is, um, just based on a, a change in the kinds of microbial environments that they have encountered. Because we know that across the animal kingdom, this is, we see this immune priming um, during development that influences, you know, all these things. So that was what I was really kind of thinking about is, in fact, the, what I had called the, the piece was um, coming of age in a microbial world. Mm -hmm. And they changed it to something else, but um, I don't remember what that tells. But I just love that we can, there's a new perspective on everything. And the microbiome really does add something. And knowing that microglial cells are immune cells and that in microglial cells, the landscape architects of the brain are being so profoundly influenced by the microbiome. I mean, to me, that is, I just want to sit and meditate on that. I want to take a six hour hike and think about that because it just shifts everything that I thought that I knew um, about neurodevelopment. It's very exciting. Well, hopefully there will be lots of abundant, cheap, accurate testing um, for people, and that would be a wonderful way to limit spread without uh, without all of the other downsides of the the other 
things that we're trying to do uh, with COVID. Um, do you? Do you? Um, I should. I should uh, let you go here pretty soon. Uh, this is like you kind of just opened up Pandora's box in my mind a little bit with that last. I, I love the idea of kids possibly not um, having the opportunity to build the same robustness in an immune system, and and later on uh, their immune system kind of. Um, falsely perceiving, um, uh, you know, what wouldn't normally be a novel um, bacterial environment um, is now a not just right. meeting new well, people is a novel yeah. bacterial environment or so. Is this is this yeah. kind of along the lines of like hygiene hypothesis? Yeah. Type I, mean, stuff? I mean, yes and no. I, I'm not sure it's pathological. First of all, I mean, the most important thing is that people respect quarantine and the recommendations of right. you know experts in public health because. You know, everything is about everything is about relative risk, right? That's what you. We've been saying that plenty on this show, so it, it's it's good to at least have you know some of course. some and pros I, and cons. I hope that that goes without saying. Um, yeah. And I'm not sure that like what was it was so good, right? So I don't know that. Um, I don't think I'm in a position to say better, or worse, uh, a different. Is is there have have you have you seen any evidence for something like the hygiene hypothesis, um, which is for listeners, for me to quick paraphrase and butcher, um, just kind of uh, maybe the immune system not getting the same number of threats that we would have in an involved environment and, and the sensitivity to the immune detection kind of regulating upwards until it, it starts perceiving threats that that um, don't exist, if that right. was maybe you know, too fast to make sense. Uh, the but is there, yeah. with, with, I'm, I'm wondering within zoos, uh, uh, if if they're in other non-human animals, if, if you've seen anything like this in, in terms of obviously there's a very different microbial environment than. Right. There, I mean, there are some there, you know, people look at wild versus domestic cats for, you know, the presence of atopy and allergy and have invoked hygiene hypothesis. But but I'm actually not talking really about this. My my argument had really nothing to do with with hygiene hypothesis or anything like you know, old friends. It was really not about the immune system. It's more thinking about the, um, the reality, this new information that the microbial environment is shaping brain development and behavior. Right. And that there has been this co-evolution of immune development and neurodevelopment. And mm. that recognizing that that has happened in that way, we can ask some really fascinating questions about why. Why is there such entrainment between the immune, you know, the microbial immune um, uh, interconnection and brain development. In what ways is it adaptive? And again, I think it makes a lot of sense that, you know, there, you know, our immune systems are partly, you know, we've got the innate immune system and the, you know, adaptive immune system, but there's also immune behavior, right? We, we back away from someone who is sick, right? When we, I mean, there's all, there's this whole suite of behavior, which is part of, of, our antimicrobial arsenal. And you know, that is shaped by our neurodevelopment. So it's just mm -hmm. that it that the, the the border between what is immune and what is neurological, all of a sudden those boundaries are being erased as we realize that the microglial cells, they look like brain cells and they are brain cells, 
but guess what? They're actually immune cells, right? As we begin to see that these the, the, the border between these systems are blurring and erased. So it's not really, I mean, the hygiene hypothesis yeah. has been great for looking at mismatch and the emergence of autoimmune disease in, in cleaner societies, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that's cool, but that's not what I was really yeah, focused on. Yeah, you're talking about yeah. synaptic pruning and one yeah. little uh, uh how, how the brain develops and finds efficiencies and categorizes and differentiates yeah, and between different optimized stimulus and, and gets optimized yeah. for the environment in, in an anticipatory way that's going to be entering i see well i hope my listeners all check out subiquity and wildhood send me questions if you do maybe i'll be able to coax uh, uh, uh barbara into coming back on and answering them sometime um next year or something and i last silly question um this is otherwise would be controversial but it's sort of a joke question what animals out there would make for the best pets i'm not condoning uh or I, i'm not i'm not i'm not saying go out and get yourself an exotic wildlife th but here uh, so first off some some caveats for this little thought experiment so it's it's a situation like this where so so like people go down to Costa Rica, right? It don't mess with, you see a sloth fall out of the tree into the water. You're like, I want to go and help it out. Don't. It's a terrific swimmer. It likes the cannonball. It, it, it did that on purpose. Don't, don't mess with it. it. It looks like it's smiling all the time. When you grab it, it's actually stressed out a lot and it looks like it's smiling and you think it's cute, but you're, you're uh, probably giving the poor thing a heart attack. But, Here's a situation. You you see, you got a, a female sloth gives birth to twins. Uh, it doesn't have the energy to care for both these twins. It's gonna let one of the sloths see which one holds on the best. One's gonna fall to the ground. It's not gonna go down, and it's gonna let this little baby sloth uh, star starve to death. You know sloths are solitary creatures. They're not like dogs. Do people are taking pack animals and putting one dog in their home, which is an unnatural environment for it. You say to yourself, maybe I can have a sloth that's solitary anyway. I'm going to have them ship the perfect dietary needs directly from Costa Rica uh, each week to me. And you do everything exactly right. Um, that sort of a situation. Mm -hmm. The animal was going to die anyway. I love it. I love it. I love it. I completely got the setup and I have my own kind of version of that. So it's not only a guilt-free, um, eco-neutral thing that <laughs> yes. you're doing. It's, at, you're actually, it's actually altruistic. It's actually, yes. yeah, I got it. Love the setup. Okay, so that's uh, a hard one because my home is not really set up for having the pets that I'm going <laughs> to mention. However, if we can use the same suspension of disbelief. So uh, there are a few species I really admire who I'd love to hang out with because I think they'd make my life better. Uh, one of them, so I'm a musician and uh, I love, love, love music, don't love to practice. And uh, the one of the cool things in wildhood, we, one of our whole sections is on humpback whales and how the males learn the song. And they actually practice, they practice measures. They literally have... I mean, they're, they're, people have written this out in like a musical score form. They, they, you know, there's, they compose and then they, and they innovate. And there's some fidelity in the songs across generations, but then they innovate and they literally practice. They do that little series of measures and they go over again and they go over again. So 
I would love to have in the most humane, appropriate, um, I would love to have a humpback male learning his songs to coax me to practice. <laughs> I'm not sure what that said is. I need more. That's one. Um, that's one. I love that pick. So and far, way, you're hitting home runs. Okay. Male only because they're the ones who practice the songs that way. I just want to be really clear about that. Okay. Yeah. The second is the second. Just so someone doesn't send you a female. Like, oh, I got you something for Christmas. Oh, so close. Uh, a for effort. Yeah, and plus, <laughs> I would love to do that bubble net feeding. That bubble, you know how they do that, the bubble net feeding, the humpbacks? Oh, That's yeah. That's mind blowing. I want, is, yeah. I want bubble net feeding lessons. I want yep. help with my practicing. And you know what else? Um, the breaching, that seems like that would be a great, like it would take a lot of core for me to be able to breach out of the water. So there we go. Yeah. So <laughs> I guess my humpbacks are more self-help for me than pets. Sure. The other um, animals. You have a therapy humpback. I have a therapy a little, You have a little vest on it. Exactly. And it, it people people can be judgy about it, but you know what? I don't care. And the second would probably be I do think those Corvids who problem solve using tools are yeah. they just look so oh, badass. Oh I think that thing's gonna tear your house apart. I think that thing is gonna yeah. get in there, it's gonna get into drawers, it's gonna okay. open your mail, it's yeah. gonna it it's Okay. Some things can be a little too smart to be. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're right. I don't want to have an animal that's smarter than I am, which is probably most (laughs) of them. And then there was in Wildhood, we um, we wrote about resilience and kind of grit in animals. And we looked at all kinds of studies that, um, you know, they didn't call it grit and resilience, but um, that looked at which uh, meerkats, which hyenas, and I can't remember, are the most persistent at these puzzle boxes, you know, they give them, they do these, um, they put like like meat or a goat, I think into the hyena's puzzle box and they see which ones, you know, will stick with it the longest and try and try and try. So um, it, I would say, I would say a spotted hyena, but I know that they, you know, I don't know that I could trust them around the babies. So maybe. Yeah. Um, what, well, what are you going female? The dominant? Are you getting the dominant? I'd want. Or, I would want the queen. I would think. I would want the high-ranking queen. Who, aggressive, by the way, but okay, that's a bold yeah, choice. She, um, you know, she intervenes. We write about something called parental intervention. These these high-ranking hyena mothers, if it looks like their daughters who inherit their uh, who inherit rank, if their daughters are not mm-hmm. like don't have what it takes to win a contest, they actually intervene. And it's like the, uh, that college it's like yelling at the coach or something yeah, or exactly. yelling, at, yelling at the ref or whatever. It's like, yeah. it's like the college scandal, which I now can't remember the name of, um, mm. whatever with it. But, uh, yeah. So I think, uh, yeah, I take a, a female, okay. hyena, but I would, you know, I'd want to make sure that the grandchildren weren't around because that could be, you know, that'd be right, probably right, right. and, um, so Corvids, I, I do love the spotted hyenas and, um, yeah, and the humpbacks. So I guess I guess that'd Those be are it. Three wonderful choice. Well, I'm a little uncertain about the Corvid. I mean, I love the logic of the Corvid. I think that there's like, I think yeah. I'm really missing some unintended consequences here. But I I am for humpback, and I'm like, no problems there. I foresee no issues with owning a humpback. So. So what do I know? Um, well, Barbara, you uh, you were a terrific guest. Uh, Barbara and Horowitz, everybody, please, once again, check out 
her books, Wild Hood and Zubiquity. And may I say, these are books that I co-authored with Catherine Bowers, and we we're a, we're a team, and we awesome. research and write. Awesome. And so it's a co-authorship. Well, well uh, put put her in touch. I'll I'll get her on sometime as well. Cool. Uh, sounds terrific. Um, awesome. Well, thank you for your time and and sharing all of your amazing knowledge and life experience and terrific insights. You are super fun to talk to. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you next week. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Next week, Aline Cohn, Behavioral Economics, talking about a guy who, for science, intentionally lost. 17,000 wallets all around the globe. See what conditions uh, would cause people to turn them back in, what types of businesses would turn them back in, what types of societies, climate. Ooh, does climate play a factor? You'll have to tune in to find out. Do I need more of a sales pitch than that to listen to next week's episode? Are you sitting there like, huh, they lost 17,000 wallets for science? Nope. Sorry. I think I'm going to skip that one. Really? You listen to this show. You came all this way. You're almost two hours into this. That's how much you enjoy science. And you're sitting there, no. Sorry, just not interested in hearing about someone losing 17,000 wallets all around the world to see what happens. All right, all right, well, that's that's interesting. I guess we're learning a lot about one another. Um, I started listening back to my podcast recently. Ugh. I've been trying to, guys, this is personal development stuff. I've been trying to work up the courage. The courage. It's more of a time thing, really. It's just like, oh, I was already there for that conversation. I, I got to sit through it again to listen to my voice. Oh. If you just naturally like hearing your voice recorded, I don't know what's wrong with you. I'm getting better at it. It's, you know, it is challenging. And uh, I think I'm going to learn a lot from it. Uh, I have still a lot of pre-recorded podcasts. But I think this new habit is going to lead to um, better highlight clips because uh, another set of eyes on it rather than just my, my editor. And um, I think that it's going to lead to me uh, just seeing the things about me that might annoy you from time to time. I'll probably notice them. Um, and uh, yeah, fix them. Maybe becoming a better host. Who knows? So I'm hoping to make uh, some incremental improvements in the quality of this show. Maybe some punctuated equilibriums. Maybe there will be a drastic improvement in my 
hosting abilities, maybe um, getting rid of ads um, will make the show more enjoyable, increase my Patreon, and even though I'm not getting ad money, might end up getting more funds for this show, which could help make it better and uh, help me have an income once again. And uh, I have a couple other things that I'm working on, including starting a new podcast with Ramin Nazer, too. And so always just trying to tweak things, build a little bit, improve a lot of small things you probably don't notice and hopefully some uh, some big changes over time as well but I will say I've really enjoyed doing these podcasts remotely more than I ever thought that I would I, I miss doing them in person I miss touring and going to universities and checking out labs checking out zoos oh stuff like that but um I don't know if it's the remote or just just that it's COVID and people just aren't uh, on guard as much or whatever it is. I just really like these conversations. They're a little more loose. They're a little more fun. They're a little more exploratory. Been doing longer episodes, going a little more in depth. And so I really think, you know, when I started this podcast, and not when, not even when I started this podcast, but I actually, you know, I'm a big believer in not believing in yourself, like just from jump street. You're not going to like just pick up a n- never having juggled before and start juggling six balls uh, your first try. You know, that's the, and instead of having confidence in putting yourself out there, getting the experience making small incremental gains and improving. And so when I when I started this podcast, I mean, I was shaking nervous every time I was doing an interview. And, uh, you know, it's I've always been decent at this because it's something that I'm really interested in. I'm passionate about this subject matter. But, you know, it's been an ongoing process of getting more and more comfortable, learning more. And I remember when I first got way more into reading science books and stuff, being overwhelmed, I was always thinking, you know, five years, five years, like you might not like reading this book right now, but five years of reading books at this level, and you're going to be so much smarter than you are. You're going to know so much more than you do right now. And it helps me with the grind and, and, um, you know, this podcast for being, having been doing it for like six and a half years now, it can be discouraging that I don't have more listeners. Everyone always wants more listeners, but, um, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't take much to double the listenership this year. And I feel like last year I started hitting, my stride as a host and so i'm just excited to get it out there for uh for more people and i think it's just going to continue to get better 
And, uh, but I'm, I'm really, I'm kind of happy that there's going to be a lot of newcomers. I, I hope that if you do get a chance to tell people about this show, I really appreciate it. Um, like if I had a choice between, you know, giving me five bucks a month on Patreon or telling a few people a month, I would, I would say, please word of mouth. If you can do both terrific, but I'll, I'll take word of mouth. I love getting this stuff out there. I love knowing more people are listening and, uh, I, I think it's only going to get more popular. I think that, um, I thought that COVID was going to be the time when people were going to start taking science a lot more seriously and get a lot more interested. And that wasn't the case. I, I talked with a lot of different science podcasts and there, you know, there's some that benefited and, and it, it was the case that some people, um, have gotten more into science, but it wasn't a dramatic change. And there was so much science denial. And then there, and there was just so much, um, visceral, like aggression and conspiracy theories and everything like that toward, uh, the very thing that we depend on uh, getting through this. And it's, you know, it's been, it's been quite the ride. And I think with a new administration and new communication and everything else, um, not just having a blowhard that will just make up whatever and just riff on things. Um, and, and just like, never say, I don't know, never say, Hey, let's listen to what the experts have to say on this. That's that uh, ju just to riff on medical knowledge that you've never had a single interest in in your life. And now you think because you're president, you're going to take charge and, and um, create obstacles for scientists and spread disinformation and everything like that because you're worried about losing the spotlight. I mean, I don't think people even understand. I don't even think people that hated Donald Trump can understand just how bad uh, he was as a leader, how incompetent he was, and just how incredibly awful uh, it, of a job he did managing this and, um, and I mean, this could have been a time for us to work together. And I think that now that things are going to change dramatically. And I think science is going to take, uh, be given the chance to take the lead on a lot of, uh, COVID things. I think things are going to, um, rapidly, uh, our lives will start improving by rapid. I mean, you know, it's still going to be a long haul, but I think from within that people are going to be exposed to a lot more actual intelligent people that know what they're talking about. And, um, and that makes a really big difference than just the weird name calling and bickering and stupid showmanship and conspiracies and all that. And, uh, so I'm pretty excited to be in a place 
where I have all of this this whole backlog of content and have all of these uh, networks of people and relationships established and experience and now I know a little bit more about what I'm doing as a host and asking um, better questions and have more a lot more knowledge than when I uh, when I started this thing and I, I feel uh, I feel so grateful uh, you know I've, I had a comedy podcast before this and it's and I'm going to have one again and it's one thing to have a have a show and like learn little bits of tricks and stuff to to get a couple more chuckles um and yeah you learn a few things along the way but man every single one of these episodes that i do with the here we are podcast i I learn so much more than i would in a year um on on past podcasts um which is always just like well advertising how much you know and seeing who can be the most interesting and everything and and so i'm super grateful i'm grateful for you guys i'm thrilled that people care uh i of course wish more people everyone wishes more people cared about the thing that they're um interested in but uh i think that people have a long ways to go to understand just how truly important science is it's the greatest tool that humans ever come up with we are primates turned that have basically turned ourselves into magicians using this incredible tool of science so uh thank you guys so much for listening and those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorite